This morning we are continuing on with our Lenten teaching series that is entitled Journey to the Cross. This is a series where we are spending every week of Lent working our way through one chapter of the Gospel, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And these words capture the final hours before Jesus' arrest. Hopefully each lesson leads us to a time of reflection and repentance. And I hope that if you were here last week or if you listened to the service on our podcast, then you enjoyed getting to repent this past week, that it was fun. It was for me. If you were not here, what we looked at was uh, the verses in Luke 22 that end in verse 46. And this is the passage of scripture where Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. It's after the Last Supper, it's at the end of a long and busy day, he knows that he is going to be arrested, and he is in agony, and he is praying there in the garden, and he asks his disciples who are with him to stay and pray with him. But they are so exhausted and tired at the end of their busy day, that though I imagine they had good intentions, every single one of them falls asleep. We asked ourselves in the lives that you and I lead, which are frantic and stressful and busy and constantly plugged in and constantly running from one thing to the next, where silence is a lost virtue for so many of us. That just like we see with the disciples, when we live a crazy busy life, often the first and greatest sacrifice that is made is that we sacrifice relationships. We don't have time for people. We're too tired. We're too busy. We're too stressed to pay attention to the lives sometimes that are right in front of us. So we invited you this week to repent, to pick up the phone and call somebody. I had people this week who let me know that they tried having dinner every night this week by putting the phone down and actually having a conversation with the person sitting across from them at the table. I had people who contacted, told me that they contacted college roommates and bridesmaids and groomsmen from weddings that happened decades ago. I myself got to call my friend Paul Barrett in California, and we talked for about an hour and a half, caught up in what was happening with our families and in our ministries. We prayed together on the phone. It was wonderful. It it was a great, great time of repentance. Today, we are going to be invited to consider a different aspect of our lives that we can repent of, that it's going to feel a little heavier, I imagine. And yet it is no less important for us to all pay attention to this morning. So I invite you to listen now to God's word, starting from Luke 22, starting with verse 47. Listen to God's word to us all today. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike now with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who, came, who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day by day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that no matter who we are, no matter how we walk in here, that you would speak to us all. That we might hear your word today and that it might mold and shape us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. They come for him in darkness. They come for him in secret. They come for him when they know that the crowds will not be watching. And this is not just how the story goes. It's not just how events unfolded. This was calculated and intentional. We see this in the beginning of Luke 22. We see it in the first sermon that started this series from the opening verses of Luke 22 when it says that the devil enters into Judas who makes the decision to betray Jesus and turn him over to the temple authorities. It says in verse 6 that Judas began to look for a time to do this when the crowd was no longer present. Indeed, Judas knew that he was going to betray Jesus, but he needed to look for a time when the crowds weren't around. The temple authorities wanted Jesus arrested. They wanted him killed, but they knew they couldn't do it in broad daylight. They knew they couldn't arrest him in front of the crowds. Because as you remember, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He's had years of teaching and preaching and healing. And as he's come into Jerusalem, every day the crowds get bigger that are following him. Every day the crowds that have gathered for the Passover are talking about him as the Messiah, the King, the one who has come in the name of the Lord to deliver them. And they see what he's doing and they're paying attention and they're following him. And and Jesus is, is constantly running into conflict with the religious authorities of his day. The ones who are going, that's not how we do things here. We know the traditions and how it's supposed to be done. Jesus is constantly running headlong into them. And Jesus is neither a people pleaser, nor is he a conflict avoider. He constantly is engaging in conflict with these temple authorities. And as he does so, and as the movement around him grows and the crowds grow around them, the the temple authorities are in danger of losing control and losing their sense of power, and they've got to get rid of them, but they can't do it while the people are present. So they wait. They wait to operate in secrecy. They wait to operate in darkness. And they find the perfect night. It's the Passover meal. It's the meal that the people wait for all year, one of the most important and holiest times of the year. People would gather in Jerusalem. Crowds would come from outside. It was a time of reunions and families coming together and friends getting together. Indeed, the the Passover meal, Jesus celebrates in an upper room with just his closest followers. It's a special, special time. You have to imagine in your head, this would be like these events taking place on something like for us, like Christmas Eve. You know, a time, and I'm not drawing parallels with the holidays, But what I'm saying is that time when we have traditions, when we get together with people, probably not the time we're checking CNN or Fox News for current events of what's happening in the world because we've got our own traditions. We've got our own ways of uh, of doing things that are are taking place, right? They look for that moment when no one's watching, when no one's paying attention, and it is intentional and calculated that this is when they send the crowd of police to arrest him. And friends, this sets off a chain of events that happens in secrecy. Most likely, Jesus is arrested, he is beaten, he is tried, and he is crucified before most people in Jerusalem even get the word that something has happened. Oh, they operate in darkness. They operate in secrecy. 
And if you told this story to many people in the United States of America today, they would probably look at it going, that's what people do. That's what authorities do. That's what systems do. That's what institutions do when they're threatened. One of the things that is a hallmark of contemporary culture is that we are becoming increasingly, increasingly suspicious of institutions and how they act. Suspicious because of events like this. Suspicious of how people abuse power and authority and sometimes run roughshod over individuals in order to do it. People have asked, and, and, and we've seen, I read this week, of the increasing number of people who are not able to vote in the presidential primaries when you have to be a registered Republican or Democrat to vote in the primaries because we are swelling in numbers of people who don't align with either party and don't do so. They are independents because they don't trust going, well, this party just speaks for me. Where does this come from? Where does this come from in our culture and in our lives? Well, some people trace it back to Watergate. Some people say that Watergate is the beginning of a time in our country when we became more and more suspicious of people in power and institutions and what we don't know about them. You see, Watergate was the cover-up scandal when in the presidential election of 1972, some people broke into the Democratic Party national headquarters to kind of see what they were doing in the election, I guess. And there was ideas from the beginning, did, did the president, did Republican running for re-election, did he know about this? Did he order it? Did he cover it up? And for years, Nixon kept saying, no, I don't know anything about it. I'm not part of a cover-up. This has nothing to do with me. But over time, the evidence mounted and mounted that Nixon had some idea of what was going on and indeed was participating in trying to cover up uh, something that had taken place with this break-in. Now, this is not the first time in history that a politician or a person in power had lied about what he knew or did not know, but it's the first time that because of technology, he lied to us in our living rooms. It's the first time that we sat there seeing the evidence mount, seeing the evidence mount that he did know something, and watched him time after time go, I have no knowledge of this. I had nothing to do with this. I am not part of a cover-up, until he finally had to resign in disgrace. It puts something in the American psyche of just because our elected officials or just because people in power tell us that they don't know something, they may not be telling us the truth. They may be keeping things secretive or in darkness. We've seen that continue to grow, that sentiment of not trusting institutions as the years have gone on. We've seen it in recent years, for example, because of events at a place like Penn State. And the cover-up that happened there, and the lives that were trampled over and destroyed by an institution protecting itself. We've seen it in the housing scandal that led to an economic downturn of 2007 and 2008 when predatory loans, which were probably unethical and maybe illegal, were taking place and sent our country into a spiral that was very, very dangerous and debilitating for many of us. And if you watched the Oscars last week, you'll know that the best picture of the year was Spotlight. Spotlight is the film about the Boston Globe's investigation of the scandal in the Catholic Church and the abuse that was going on, but more importantly, the consistent cover-up of that scandal time and time again by people in authority to protect the institution. Friends, it is events like this in our culture that have made us people who are suspicious of institutions, 
who don't feel a great loyalty to institutions anymore. You know, when people move to Austin, we're going to recognize in our services today new members that have joined our church. It used to be that people moved to Austin saying, you know, I'm looking for a Presbyterian church to join. That loyalty has gone. People aren't moving today. Most of them aren't looking to go to church. But if they are, they're not starting with denominational loyalty as helping them figure out where they go. And so we have to kind of teach, here's what it means to be Presbyterian, because the vast majority of them don't know. And that's not why they're here. They're here because they see a community where they're experiencing life, and they want to be a part of that. But the, the, the institutional part is not the reason they're here. They don't think that way anymore. We see this all the time. And it would be easy for us to call for repentance by saying we need our institutions to be more transparent. And indeed, that has been a call. I'm aware as a pastor that I can no longer look at a congregation and say, you don't need to know what's happening here, but just trust us we're doing the right thing with the finances of the church. People don't go for that anymore because they're suspicious. They don't trust. And so I believe that transparency is a good thing. I think the transparency is important. But friends, at the heart of every institutional cover-up, including the one that is taking place here, where these authorities operate in secrecy and in darkness to arrest and have Jesus removed, it's not just that institutions do this, but there are individuals who are leading and parts of those institutions who make that decision. There are always people at the center of it who choose to operate in darkness rather than operating in the light for whatever reason. As followers of Jesus, it's not enough for us just to call for institutions to be transparent, but indeed we must be people who in our individual lives call ourselves and others to individual transparency. And that gets a lot trickier because it's easier to look at the government and tell why we don't like or trust it or a political party or the church you see, when you start getting into whether individuals are keeping secrets, that starts hitting a lot closer to home. Because that starts describing you. And that certainly describes me. We are all people who keep parts of our lives hidden. We are all people who have parts of ourselves that we're proud of and we love for people to observe and see, and yet other parts we're more ashamed of that we would rather keep quieter. We work to project one image versus another. Dallas Willard talks about this. Dallas Willard is a, is a wonderful author, and he talks about how if you ask most people, do you want to be good, people will say yes. And if you ask people, as part of being good, that you're honest and transparent, they will say yes. They agree with that. But he says when most people say they want to be good and honest and transparent, what they mean is they want other people to think that they're good and transparent, and they put more effort into appearing good rather than pursuing being good. Because see, if you're interested in pursuing being good, you have to be really interested in people seeing the parts of you that are not admirable, that you don't win awards for, that people don't look at and go, oh, that's a wise sage that we just need to pay attention to and listen. It's why we confess every week in worship, because we are broken people. And to move towards actually being good, you have to move into those places of pain or disappointment or shame. But we would rather prop up an, uh, an appearance of being good and having it together. It's actually far easier to do. Are you someone who is interested in being good or appearing good? Because it's not the same thing. And as we see in this passage, there are very real consequences to when we keep parts of ourselves and our decisions in darkness. Very real consequences. 
Do you ever wonder when you read the Gospels why these Pharisees are never able to imagine that maybe Jesus is actually the Messiah? Do you ever read that and wonder that? It's like the crowds get it, the disciples get it, and yet these temple officials consistently just miss what's right in front of them. Why is that? Well, maybe some of it has to do with when you live a life where you are constantly behind the scenes trying to manipulate systems and constantly trying to work in certain ways that are less than transparent and less than honest, you sometimes can actually miss someone being completely honest and transparent right in front of your face. There's consequences, whether we're caught or not, to living lives where we keep parts of ourselves hidden. Or take this. In our world in which we live today, in the, uh, one of the things that is prevalent and becoming increasingly disturbingly prevalent are the images that people look at and the activities they engage in when they go online. When they go online with no one else around, there are things that they might be ashamed for others to know and see. There might be things they're ashamed for their spouse to know, or their friends to know, or their covenant group to know. This is a growing epidemic in our country. And rather than journeying into that and holding that out and living transparently, what we do is spend a lot of time projecting an image of having it all together and maintaining a secret part of our lives. Maintaining an image of the person who has the perfect life while maintaining secrets over here. And there are consequences to that whether you're caught or not. Studies show us that people who do that become increasingly narcissistic, become increasingly self-centered, become increasingly unaware of the needs of those immediately around them because they are more interested in self-gratification. Whether you're caught or not, there are very real consequences to having these kinds of hidden parts to ourselves. Or take, for example, that we're in tax season. Talked to somebody recently that was talking about filing their tax returns, and you need to do that. The date's getting closer and closer, so you've got to be on top of that. But they were talking about the fact that every year they see how much they can withhold, and if they kind of cross the line of exactly what the IRS allows, they're pretty confident that they're not going to get caught. The IRS isn't going to call them out on just a few things for not a whole lot of money in the grand scheme of things. Friends, whether that's your attitude, whether you're caught or not, do you not think that that kind of attitude bleeds into the other part of your lives? Do you not think the attitude of how much can I keep and how much can I hide and how much can I, can I not let other people know about and how much can I hoard for myself, do you not think that that bleeds over into how you act in other parts of your life? Of course it does. There are consequences to when we live this way. Or how about if you're a parent? You're a parent who's got a great um, family and, and great children, but sometimes kids are kids and they can act up or they can do something that in public that isn't 100% right. And you're such a good parent that you don't want to distract other people. So you take your child aside to discipline them. Is it because of that, because of caring for other people, or is it because you would feel embarrassed if people heard the words you used and the tone you spoke in? Are you more interested in appearing to have it together and being good? Or are we actually interested in doing the hard work of being good. It's not the same thing. This week was a busy week in my life. This week was a week when I uh, had to travel for a number of different um, events and meetings, and so I wound up being in three cities in four days, and it was kind of a whirlwind of a week and an exhausting week. And one of the places I went was Atlanta. 
I had to go there for uh, a series of meetings, and while I was there, it was weird because it hit me that I was going as a visitor to my hometown, right? I grew up in Atlanta. I lived there for the last eight years before moving out here to Austin two years ago. And so it's weird when you show up in the place that for most of you, your life you've considered home, and it's not really home anymore. It sort of feels that way, but kind of not anymore. And so it's this weird space that you go in. And in the midst of this, you know, because we're all crazy busy, busy week. I had a, a busy, busy week this week. In the midst of this frantic activity, I got to reflect during a very long cab ride in rush hour traffic to our meeting about growing up there and about this scripture and these lessons. And as some of you know, my parents uh, divorced after 24 years of marriage. Uh, when I was, uh, after I, right after I graduated from high school, before going to college, and I have two younger brothers. I was thinking about it, and thinking about it in light with the scripture, because like many of you, and like many families, we had a role growing up that we pray, played, that you had to put on a certain appearance in your family. My grandfather and my mom's side of the family are leaders in the city of Atlanta. My grandfather and uncle have both led publicly traded companies in Atlanta. They've both been uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce. They both serve on multiple different boards. They are very public figures in the city. My mom is the, was the president of the Junior League of Atlanta, which is one of the largest chapters in the country. She served on boards. We just sort of were raised in a world where we understood we were public people who had to constantly project success. I learned, along with my two younger brothers at a young age, how you acted when you were at a gala or event, how you dressed, how you spoke, the manners that you used, and the consequences when we didn't. We sent out Christmas cards every year that would trump any of your Christmas cards. They were so amazing. We were an incredibly wonderful, beautiful family. We had a letter that went out with it that talked about all the boards and all the accomplishments and all the jobs and everything that was going on. The letter proved to anyone who read it that the city of Atlanta would collapse in doing life and business if the Daniels had not been there to save the day every year. And after 24 years of marriage, my parents blew apart. And we were the family that people looked at, and I still have people who say this to me, who come up to me and go, I can't believe your parents split apart. I can't believe that that happened. If it can happen to them, it can happen to anybody. It was a shock to so many different people because of what we projected. But you know who it was not a shock to? It was not a shock to me. It was not a shock to my brother David. It was not a shock to my brother Hayes. Because we had spent so much time on the appearance of being people who had it together that we had neglected actually trying to be good and healthy and right. I wonder what would have happened five years into my marriage if my parents had put a lot less energy into the appearance that we had in public and actually done the incredibly hard work of trying to have a healthy marriage. We'll never know. Are you more interested in doing the hard, messy work of being good? Or are you more interested in your appearance of having it together and being good? Because when it's the latter, it will lead to secrets. It will lead to shame. It will lead to you hiding things. It will lead to you operating in darkness. And friends, God created you to have an abundant life. And abundance cannot be created out of secrets and darkness. 
Are you more interested in being good or appearing to be? This week, I invite you to consider that. I invite you to consider what it would mean to repent, what it would mean to hold these places of shame or incompleteness or failure out in front of God, to speak them and name them honestly, to to hold them out before God and actually see what God can do with it rather than trying to push it aside or forget about it or keep it hidden. I invite you to maybe consider having the courage to share with another person, someone you trust, someone who can walk with you in honesty, someone who can walk with you in light, the thing you wouldn't imagine wanting anyone else to know. Because when we find the courage to do that, to be honest and move towards the things that are hard, we don't have to spend so much energy in appearances because God can actually touch those places and make them good. What might that look like for you today? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us all. You would help us to be honest and authentic and open with you and maybe even with others. Help us to identify where appearances govern our actions and help us and liberate us to pursue lives that truly seek to be honest and good. We pray for the courage to do that this day and this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.